Well, let me add my thanks to pastors in giving you uh, my heartfelt gratitude for your attendance this week. I, I was thinking this afternoon, I don't think I've been in a church in all these years that has been more on time than your church. I don't know where that got drilled into you, but you folks are right on time. And I mentioned it to somebody and they said, well, pastor always starts on time. Well, I'm in churches that always start on time too, but uh, people don't always get there on time. You've done a tremendous job this week. And I know, as pastor said, it's busy and uh, work and school and all these things. And yet, thank you for clearing out your evening and uh, being with us. Thank you for all those that prepared the meal and, and provided that for us. And those that served in nurseries and took care of children and men in the sound uh, area helping us with that. And just a lot of things going on that we don't always see, but uh, God does. And he's not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. And uh, thank you for being in your place. It's just a real encouragement uh, to see you coming to the house of God and letting God work in your heart. And my prayer is always that the revival meetings end, but hopefully the revival does not. And uh, we want the revival to keep on working in the days ahead. And uh, I'm asking the Lord to give much fruit from these meetings in the weeks ahead. And it's just been an honor and a delight to be around your pastor and uh, your staff and uh, you folks each night and the young people in the morning have just been tremendous in the chapel in giving their hearts and attention as well to God's word. It's truly been an honor and a joy uh, to be a part of this church for these few days with you. Take your Bible, if you will, tonight. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter number 18. 1 Kings and chapter 18. As we come to this passage of Scripture tonight, the nation of Israel is in trouble. It has not reigned in Israel for three and a half years. Tremendous drought. In fact, not even a drop of dew has been upon the ground for three and a half years. And the reason for this judgment upon the land is poor leadership. The king of Israel at this time is a man by the name of Ahab. His wife's name was Jezebel. Most people that have never read the Bible know those names. In fact, I, I, I've met a lot of people. I've never met anybody named Ahab. I met a horse named Ahab one time, but I've never met a person named Ahab. I've never met a person named Jezebel. There probably is one somewhere, but I, I've never met anybody named Jezebel. Isn't it interesting that people who've never read the Bible do not name their kids Ahab and Jezebel? In fact, uh, when our first son was born, we bought one of those baby name books. We wanted to see what names meant. I didn't want to name my kids something they would hate me for for the rest of their life. And I remember looking at that book and the names Ahab and Jezebel were not in the book. It just proves the Bible is true because Proverbs 10 verse 7 says, The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. And the names of Ahab and Jezebel rot on the pages of history. We could say much about Ahab and Jezebel and their lives, but God says it very succinctly in 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 25, where he says, There was none like unto Ahab which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. So God said there was nobody any more wicked than this man Ahab, and the catalyst behind that wickedness was his wife Jezebel. So these were wicked people, and they had led the nation away from the God of heaven into all kinds of idolatrous worship. 
particularly the worship of Baal. So as this chapter opens, and if you scan the early verses there, Ahab is concerned because there's no water. Hasn't rained for three and a half years. There's no moisture and everything's drying up. And he's concerned that they're about to lose all the cattle. They're about to lose all the beasts. So he calls Obadiah, who's the governor of his house. Now, Obadiah is an interesting character here. Verse 3 says that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Verse 12, it says he feared the Lord from his youth. So here was a man that had known God for a long time, knew him early on in his life. And the Bible says he feared God. But we kind of scratch our heads. What's he doing as the governor of Ahab's house? Here's this Obadiah guy. He fears the Lord greatly. He, he, he fears the Lord from his youth, yet in a time of crisis, he is second in command to the most wicked king that's ever lived. You know, sometimes crisis reveals who we are. And so Ahab says to Obadiah, we got to find water. So they divided the land between them, and Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him. Now, they thought Elijah was dead. Elijah, of course, is the prophet of God that we all know well. And they thought he was dead. In fact, this chapter reveals that Ahab had taken an oath. He had made a promise to the people that Elijah was dead. They haven't seen him in three and a half years. Now, we can read the chapters previous and know exactly where Elijah was. God, during this crisis, took him up to the brook Cherith, where he was drinking of the water there. And the ravens came twice a day, you remember, and brought him his food. Then when the brook Cherith dried up, God sent him down to the widow's house. And God sustained her meal and sustained the prophet through that widow. God was taking care of his his man. God always does take care of his people. But they thought he was dead. So when Obadiah sees Elijah standing in front of him, he's not sure what he's seeing. He's thinking, maybe I'm seeing a ghost or somebody back from the dead. And so he falls down in front of him and he says, art thou that my Lord Elijah? And Elijah says, yep, it's me. Go tell your boss I want to see him. And Obadiah says, I I can't do that. If I go tell Ahab you're alive, he's going to want to see you. And by the time I get him back over here to see you, the Spirit of God will take you, whether we know not. And when he can't find you, he's going to kill me. Whenever you live a double life, you're always afraid you're going to get caught. Nobody just got caught. So Elijah says, fine, I'll go see him myself. So by the time we get to about verse 16, Elijah is walking into the oval office of King Ahab. And when Ahab sees Elijah, he says, you're the guy that's troubling Israel. You're the problem. You're the reason we have this drought. And Elijah says, no, I'm not the problem. You are. And Ahab says, no, you're the problem. And Elijah says, no, you're the problem. And they have this third grade playground conversation for a few minutes. And finally, Elijah says, tell you what, let's have a contest. Let's go up to the top of Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was a place where various religious groups would go to offer sacrifices. It was sort of a neutral place. 
It's a place for many different people would come, build an altar, offer up a sacrifice to their God. And so Elijah says, let's go up to Carmel. You bring your prophets of Baal. I'll go up there. We'll have a contest. We'll build two altars. We'll put some wood on the altar. We'll put a bullock on each altar. And then we'll take turns praying. Your prophets of Baal can pray to Baal. And I'll pray to the God of heaven. And whichever God answers by fire and devours the sacrifice, he will be the winner. He'll be the true God. Well, apparently Ahab has a little competitive spirit in him. He says, you've got a deal. So now this contest is set. This Super Bowl of gods is going to take place. And I can just kind of picture in my mind this day. I can kind of imagine this as this event unfolds. I can see the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves. There were 450 prophets of Baal. There were 400 prophets of the groves. So 850 false prophets, they're making their way up to the top of Carmel. And I'm sure they're walking rather confidently. I'm sure their heads kind of held high. I mean, there's way more of them. They are definitely in the majority. And so they're confident they're going to win. And so they're making their way up there, probably laughing and having a good time. They're going to they're show the world today that Baal is the true God. And then I can see Ahab and Jezebel being carried by their entourage of servants with all the glitz and glamour of the kingdom. They're being carried up to the top of Mount Carmel to watch this event. And then there's the people. I mean, word got out. Hey, there's going to be a contest on the top of Carmel, and we're going to find out who the true God is. And word went out. And so multitudes of people began to gather. They began to walk up to the top of Carmel to see this great event. And then I picture Elijah probably walking alone. This man the Bible calls a peculiar man, a hairy man. And I think he's walking in a spirit of prayer. Well, they get to the top of Carmel. And Elijah says to the false prophets, You guys go first. There's more of you. So you take your turn first. So the prophets of Baal, they they built an altar. And they put some wood on the altar. And they took a bullock and they cut it in four pieces. And they laid it on the altar. And then they began to pray to Baal. Now, Baal is a god, but he's a little g-god. He's a stone god. He has eyes, but he can't see. He has ears, but he can't hear. But they're praying to Baal. And, and nothing's happening. They're praying and praying, but there's no fire falling. Nothing's happening. And Elijah's over here mocking them. He's saying, uh, 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 take your time. You know, he might be on a journey. You might give him time to get back. Or, or maybe, he's, uh, maybe he's sleeping. Uh, uh, pray a little louder. You'll wake him up. I mean, he's giving them a hard time. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. In fact, they got so desperate in their prayers that the Bible says in this chapter they took knives and lancets and began to cut themselves. And these are the words of the Bible. It says the blood gushed out on the altar. I mean, cutting is not new. They prayed for seven hours. Nothing happened. So finally, about the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. 
Now, what do you do when it's your turn? What do you do when all eyes are on you? And you need a miracle. You need God to answer a prayer. I mean, if God doesn't come through here, everything you've said, everything you believe, everything you've preached, it's all in vain if he doesn't answer. What do you do when it's your turn? By the way, this is our turn. This is our day. Other people have had their time to serve the Lord, but this is our generation. This is our time. It's our turn. We have the ball. We're inside the red zone. The clock is ticking. We need a revival. We need an awakening. What do we do? Let's see what Elijah did. Let's pick up the story in verse 29 of chapter 18. And it came to pass... When midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. The first step that Elijah takes when it's his turn, is he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. He fixes the broken. Can I remind us tonight that the fire of God does not fall on broken altars? Is anything broken in our lives tonight? How is our relationship with God? Do you have a relationship with God? You say, well, I I, I know God. Okay, does he know you? Relationships require two people. A lot of people say, well, I'm a Christian. What does God say? I could say, it's really nice to have my wife here tonight. She flew in today, and, and we, don't, we don't get to travel a lot together. She's going to fly back with me tomorrow, and it's really nice to have Diane here tonight. And I could probably convince some of you that my wife's sitting in the back. But there's not a woman in here that will claim me as her husband. Because <laughs> I was pulling your leg. My wife's not here. A lot of people are going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I say unto you, I never knew you. You see, sometimes at an invitation, we will say, are you a Christian? If you're a Christian, raise your hand as a testimony and we raise our hand. Will the Holy Spirit raise his hand confirming your hand? Because when you stand before God, it's not going to matter what you say. It's going to matter what he says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Does he know you? How's your relationship with God? If you know him, by the way, that verse goes on to say in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. In other words, if you're not following, you're not a sheep. So how's our relationship? Is there anything broken? Is there anything between our soul and the Savior? we got to fix the broken. How's our relationship with 
those around us. It's important to have the right vertical relationship with God, but what about then the horizontal relationships? What about your spouse? Are you right with one another? Parents, are you right with your children? Children, are you right with your parents? What about our fellow church members? Say, why? When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes need of his enemies to be at peace with him. How's our relationship with God, with those around us? Is anything broken? Aren't you glad when stuff gets broken in our life, God's in the repair business? It doesn't have to stay broken. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no reason to walk out of here tonight with a broken relationship with God or a broken relationship with anybody else. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, for he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In fact, Micah 7, 18 says, he delighteth in mercy. What an amazing characteristic of God. He delights in mercy. I don't delight in mercy. Somebody does me wrong, I want to do him wrong back. But not God. God delights in forgiveness. He delights in our hearts getting right with him. He delights when God's people come back to normal in revival and have this relationship that is right with him and with others around them. Elijah fixes the broken. See, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. My wife and I, over the years of marriage, we've had some pets. We presently don't have a pet, but we've had some over the years. When we first got married, we had a gerbil. I'm not sure what that is. And I really don't remember what happened to it. (laughs) But he didn't last long. But over the years, the kids came along. We had dogs and cats and fish. We never had anything exotic like a boa constrictor or anything like that. We had some pets. And I suppose over these years, we've had five, six, maybe seven dogs. I don't know, kind of lost track. And I like dogs. I wouldn't mind having a dog now, but our lives are a little too complicated for that. But I like dogs. But you know, in all those years, we had a dog. I was never tempted. Not even in the littlest bit. I was never tempted, not once, to drink out of the dog dish. Now, where we live, it gets hot. I mean, in the summer, it's triple digits and well above, and it's a dry heat, it's hot, it's, and, and, and you lose your hydration very easily. And, and I can remember being outside playing with the kids in the yard or doing some work in the backyard, and I'd come in, I'd be thirsty, and, and, and right there by the kitchen sink was the dog dish. And it was a nice one, kind of a powder blue color, had two compartments, one for food, one for water. Nice dog dish. I, I mean, really nice. I bet we paid, I bet we paid $2.95 for the thing at Walmart. It was a nice dog dish. And it always had water in it. And the easiest thing in the world would be just drop to my knees and lap water out of the dog dish and quench my thirst. But I was never even tempted. Oh, no, no, no. I walked way past the dog dish. I mean, two or three more steps. 
all the way to the kitchen cupboard. I opened it up. I took out a glass. I made sure it was clean. I closed the cupboard. I walked past the dog dish again to the refrigerator. I got some ice cubes. I got some water and quenched my thirst. Why? Because a dog dish is a vessel, but it's a vessel of dishonor. And when God gets ready to send revival, he's not going to use dog dish Christians. We got to fix the broken. But then I want you to know, secondly, he fills the barrels. Now let's read on. Look at verse 31. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel should be thy name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. They did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. Now, does this seem a little strange? I'm not an outdoorsman. I I love the outdoors. I I, I love being outside, but I'm not an outdoorsman. I I don't enjoy going out and living off the land, you know, camping in some remote place where you have to drink water out of a cacti and eat bark off a tree or something. I'm just not that kind of a guy. But I know this. If you're trying to start a fire out there in the woods, you don't want wet wood. Now, the contest is to see who can call down fire from their God and devour this sacrifice. And yet Elijah, before he prays, he says, fill four barrels with water and pour it on the sacrifice. And they do it a second time, and then a third time, and water is now saturated, this whole deal. And, and water is dripping, and it's filled the trench around the altar. By the way, have you ever wondered where they got the water? It hasn't rained for three and a half years. First part of the chapter, they don't have water to, to keep the animals alive. So where'd they get the water? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Sorry. (laughs) It's kind of like vacation Bible school. Come back tomorrow, boys and girls. Tomorrow we will find out if the cannibals eat the missionaries. (laughs) Oh, tomorrow's Saturday. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Thanks for coming. Have a good summer. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say. So we're kind of left to some conjecture here. So where do they get the water? Well, some might say the Mediterranean Sea. But that's a long ways away. I've been to Mount Carmel. That's a long walk. And it's already the time of the evening sacrifice. And again, this story moves along really quickly in the scripture. But Elijah didn't say fill 12 barrels with water. He said fill four. They filled four, they dumped it on, and they said, fill them again. So there wasn't time to go from Mount Carmel to the Mediterranean once before dusk, rather than three times. So the Mediterranean's out. 
So where'd they get the water? Well, I don't know because the Bible doesn't say, but I'm going to give you an opinion. These people who had come to watch this event, earlier in their chapter, we'll see it in a minute, Elijah addresses them before all this, and he said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, and if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Elijah, when he says, fill four barrels with water, he's not giving that command to the false prophets. They're over there licking their wounds. He's not giving that command to Ahab and Jezebel. He's giving that command to the people. They're the only other ones up there except him. So when he says, fill four barrels with water, he's talking to this crowd that came to watch. And I believe that every person there had some water. Some personal water. Some drinking water. Because you would not make that trip without some water. As precious as the water was, as scarce as it was, you would not have made that journey. You wouldn't go up there today on a, on a four-wheeler without water. It's desert. It's dry. And they're up there all day. So they would have brought, a, as we would call it, a water bottle or a canteen or something with some water in it. And Elijah is saying, I want you to take that water that you can see that you're trusting him to get you home. And I want you to give it to the one you can't see. And watch what he does. He's saying, exercise faith. By the way, water's not going to be a problem on the way home. We're not going to get that far tonight. You read the rest of the chapter. It's going to rain on the way home like they'd never seen it rain. There's going to be plenty of water to drink. On the way home. But Elijah is saying, I want you to take what you can see, give it to the unseen God, and trust him by faith. And so they filled four barrels with water. And Elijah pours it on. And he says, uh, Some of you still have water. You're not fully trusting. Pass those offering barrels again. <laughs> And they filled him again. And he poured it on. He said, some of you are still holding out. See, with God, faith is all or nothing. So they filled him a third time. Could I encourage you tonight to fill some barrels by faith? We got to start praying some prayers that only God can answer. I think sometimes we pray prayers that if God doesn't answer, we got a plan B. We got something in our back pocket. Well, we'll rely on this if God doesn't come through. No, 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 no. We got to pray some prayers that if God doesn't answer, we're done. We got to pray some prayers by faith. Why? Because without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It doesn't say improbable or unlikely, it's impossible. Fill some barrels tonight by faith. What is it that God needs to do in your life? What is it that God needs to do in an unsaved person that maybe you've thought it's too late, they're never going to get saved, I've tried to witness to them. Why don't you put them back on your prayer list? 
So many people have given up on revival in America and they thought it's too late. We can't see another great awakening. Why don't you put that back on your prayer list? God specializes in doing the impossible. We've got to pray by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith. For what there is not of faith is sin. We got to fix the broken. We got to fill some barrels by faith. Then notice thirdly, he focuses beyond. Pick it up now in verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Now, now go back in the chapter just a little bit. Let's review a little bit here. Go back to, look at verse uh, 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. At this juncture of the chapter, Elijah is focused on this wicked king. He's standing in his office or wherever he is, and he's saying, you're the problem. You have forsaken God. You've rejected his word, and this judgment is a result of your wickedness. I mean, he is focused on King Ahab and his wicked leadership. Drop down to verse 21. Now we're on the top of Mount Carmel. We're ready for this event. And Elijah came unto all the people. And he said, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Here's Elijah preaching to this crowd before the event begins. He's saying, look, we don't need spectators up here. We need participants. If you believe God is the true God, then come and stand with me. If you believe Baal is the true God, then go over here and stand with him. He is focused on this multitude of people that have come to watch. Drop your eyes down to verse 27. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's on a journey or preventure he sleepeth and must be awaked. Here now he's focused on the false prophets as they're trying to pray and get their God to answer. Elijah's mocking them as we said a moment ago. He's focused on them. But now, now it's his turn. And where's his focus? His focus is not... On Ahab and Jezebel. His focus is not on the people that are watching. His focus is not on the false prophets. Oh, all of their eyes are on him. But Elijah draws near and he focuses beyond. Oh, Lord God. We've got to lift our eyes above all the circumstances and all of the chaos that's going on around us. We've got to get our eyes back on God. He's the only one that can help us. If we're going to see revival, it's not going to come because of something we do. If we're going to see revival in this land, it's not going to come because of a, an election or because of some conservative law. No, we've got to focus beyond all of that. 
I'm not saying those things are not important, but we've got to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We've got to set our affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. When you look around, you're going to get discouraged. You look around, you're going to be depressed. When you look around, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get angry. We've got to lift our eyes above all of this stuff and get our eyes back on God. He fixes the broken. He fills the barrels. He focuses beyond. And then fourthly, he follows boldly. Now look what happens. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Whoa. I don't know if anybody was peeking during the prayer. But can you imagine looking up after this prayer that Elijah prays, and there's nothing there? When they bowed their head to pray, there was an altar. There was wood on the altar. There there was a, a bullock on the wood. The thing is dripping with water. The trench around it is filled with water. Elijah prays, and the fire falls, and there's nothing there. It burnt up the sacrifice. It burnt up the wood. It burnt up the stones. I've seen fire do some destructive things. I've never seen fire burn a rock. This one did. There's nothing there. The water's gone. The dust is gone. There's nothing. I hope there's video of this in heaven. I want to see this. It's amazing. And what was the response? Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, They fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Boy, wouldn't you like to hear that today? Suppose you went home tonight. You said, you know, we've been, boy, we've been running this week. We've been in church every night. We we haven't even watched the news. Let's turn on the news for a minute. You turn on your favorite news station, and and there's President Biden and his wife, Jill, and you're thinking, ah, yeah. I don't, want to, I don't want to listen to that. Let's, let's go over to ESPN. Let's see who won the ball games tonight. Go to ESPN. There's President Biden and his wife. You're thinking, eh. Go to the Food Network. You know? <laughs> There's President Biden and his wife, Jill. And you're thinking, what in the world happened when we were at church? And the president is saying, uh, I apologize, ladies and gentlemen, for interrupting your regularly scheduled programming. But tonight, as Jill and I were headed back to the White House, we were walking across the West Lawn there, and someone handed us a gospel tract. We came into the West Wing and sat down and read it. And after we read it, we realized we were sinners. And that Christ died for our sins. And as the tract said, if we would call upon the name of the Lord, we could be saved. Jill and I prayed that prayer of salvation tonight. And I want all of America and all of the countries around the world to know tonight that the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Say, Brother Getch, I don't think that's going to happen. It's happened before. It happened right here. And the most wicked king that ever lived was on the throne. 
It happened twice in the book of Daniel. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They threw them in the furnace of fire because they wouldn't bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar, a man whom, whom he would he slew, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he put down, whom he would he put up. I mean, this Nebuchadnezzar is probably the most powerful king that's ever lived. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they disobeyed the order and they get thrown into a furnace of fire. Heated up seven times hotter than it had ever been before. The people who threw him in there were burnt to a crisp. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in that fire and he says, uh, didn't we put three in there? I see a fourth. The fourth is like the son of God. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out of there. They came out and the Bible says their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar says, ladies and gentlemen, whoever their God is, is now our God. Remember Daniel? They made a phony law. You couldn't ask a petition of God or man for 30 days or you'd be sent to a den of lions. Think about that. If I said right now, you know, my throat's bothering me. Could, could somebody get me some water? If I ask somebody to get me water, I go to a den of lions. You could not ask a petition of God or man for 30 days. They knew they had Daniel because he prayed three times a day. And Daniel 6, verse 10, Daniel, knowing the writing was signed, he knew what the law was, knowing the writing was signed, went into his house, his windows and his chamber being open toward Jerusalem. He kneeled down, prayed and gave thanks to his God three times a day as he did aforetime. And they caught him. They heard him praying. So to the king they go with Daniel. And Daniel is thrown into a den of lions. And Daniel sleeps really well that night. He sleeps like a kitten. Now, the king, he couldn't sleep. He could not. He couldn't find the right number on that posturepedic bed. He just couldn't find it. He's up all night, tossing and turning. And finally, as the day began to break, he goes down to the lion's den. He says, Daniel, Daniel, are you all right? Daniel's like, yeah, king, I'm fine. What's up? It's kind of early. King says, Daniel, come out. And Daniel comes out and he orders those men who had made that law to be thrown into that den of lions. And before their bodies hit the floor, the lions had crushed them and devoured them. And the king said, the God of Daniel is now the God of this nation. Friends, this has happened before. And it can happen again. But we're going to have to follow boldly. See, a lot of times this is where we end the sermon. Look at verse 40. And Elijah said unto them, I think he's talking to the people again. Take the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they took them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. When this is all over, Elijah says, take those prophets of Baal down to Kishon. They took him down there. They lined him up along the brook. And Elijah goes over to the first guy in line. There's 450 of them. He goes over to the first guy in line. He pulls out his sword. And cuts him in half. Second guy. Cuts him in half. 
Third guy. <laughs> Cuts him in half. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been standing in that line, I would have been nudging my buddy. He's coming this way. Let's stop him. There were 450 of them. There's only one of him. Why did they stop him? They didn't dare stop him. They had just seen his God bring down fire that burnt rocks. Ladies and gentlemen, when we fix the broken, and we fill the barrels of faith, and we focus beyond all this stuff around us and get our eyes back on God, and we begin to follow boldly, there is nothing that can stop God's church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But we got to get some courage. I don't know what's coming down the pike in America. I have no idea, but I don't like what I see. And I tell you, we better get some courage. Amen. You say, well, Brother Getch, I'm just kind of a timid guy. I, I, I really don't like confrontation. I, I just, you know, it's easier for me just to kind of, kind of sit in the background and kind of be silent, let some others, you know. Regardless of your personality, go back to the first point. Fix the broken. Because the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. God gives courage to the righteous. You get your life right. Get that relationship right. The boldness will come, and we must follow boldly. Now, I love chapter 18. I love this chapter. I've probably preached more out of this chapter than any chapter in the Bible. I absolutely love it. I hate chapter 19. I wish it wasn't in the Bible. But God's a just God. And before we go, look at verse 1 of chapter 19. And they have told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me. And more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Here comes a threat. And you can go home and read chapter 19. Elijah hears this threat and he begins to run. And later in the chapter, he ends up in a cave. And God's waiting for him. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, God, I've been very jealous for you. I've done everything according to your word. But now I'm the only one left. And they seek my life. I'm out. I'm done. I'm not going to stand here by myself. I'm the only one that hasn't bowed to Baal. And now they're trying to kill me. Lord, take me out. Just kill me. I want to go home. And God hears those prayers too. He says, okay, Elijah, I'll get you out. I'm not going to kill you because I love you. I'll send a whirlwind to come get you. But Elijah, before I order the whirlwind, uh, I got a couple things I need you to do. First, I want you to go find Hazael. 
He's one of my men. He has not bowed to Baal. He loves me. He's faithful to me. I want you to find him. And I want you to anoint him, the next king of Syria. When you get that done, I want you to find Jehu. Now, you'll have to move quickly. He drives furiously. But find Jehu. He's one of my men. He has not bowed to Baal. He's faithful to me. You find him and anoint him, the next king of Israel. When you get that done, I want you to find Elisha. Name kind of like yours. He'll probably be plowing in a field. You find him, Elijah. You put your mantle on him because he's going to be the next prophet in your room. And oh, by the way, he's going to do twice as many miracles as you ever thought about doing. And Elijah, if any of those three guys tell you no, you come back and see me. Because I have 7,000 more on my list that have not bowed their knee to Baal. You know what's amazing about this? Elijah didn't know any of them. He just said, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that hasn't caved. And now they're trying to kill me. I don't want to be here anymore. God said, no, no, I, I got Hazael, I got Jehu, I got Elisha, I got, I got 7,000 others. How come Elijah couldn't see these people? You know why? Because when you and I are focused on self you can be sitting in the middle of a miracle and not even know it. I shouldn't have to remind you of this, Cleveland Baptist Church, but you are sitting in a miracle. This is not the norm across America. Many churches don't even have church Sunday night. Much less a pastor say, we're going to have four days of revival. This isn't the norm. You're sitting in a miracle. Read the history of Cleveland Baptist Church. Read what this church has done through the years of worldwide missions, of Christian education, of reaching people with the gospel in the Cleveland area. Listen, you're sitting in the middle of a miracle, and some of you can't see it because all you're focused on is me. God's doing miracles all over this world. Some of us in America, we don't see it because all we're looking at is ourself. We got to fix the broken. We got to fill the barrels by faith. We got to focus beyond and then follow boldly. And I'm telling you, some of the most exciting days in church history are in front of us. These could be the most exciting days since the book of Acts. Now, some churches may get started when we go to prison. But those were exciting days. And we're living right in the middle of it. And we need to be a part of it. It's our turn. This is our generation. This is our time. Let's not fumble the ball. Let's not not get a penalty. Let's take that ball over the goal line into the end zone. So that for all of eternity, we can celebrate with those who moved the ball before us. And tonight, as a great cloud of witnesses, are cheering us on to be faithful.
Let's bow for prayer.